0: Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to author and journalist Alex Perry, who is known for his book, The Good Mothers.
1: So Alex, I've known for some years since we worked together at Newsweek. He's been something of a mentor to me. Uh, Great to have him on the show. He's got a very varied background. He was a foreign correspondent for Time magazine. He covered the war in Afghanistan. And in recent years, he's gone freelance and moved into writing books and also doing some really interesting TV projects.
0: I Hope you enjoy the episode.
1: So I'm here with uh, the author and journalist Alex Perry. Uh, we're doing this interview via Skype, so uh, I apologise for any uh, issues with the audio quality. Alex is in France at the moment, um, but Alex, it's really great to, to have you on the show. Um, I know you've been a supporter of Always Take Notes for for a long time. I was wondering if we could start by talking a bit about your your early life and your uh, initial interest in in kind of writing and journalism and and literary uh, literary affairs. Where did that come from?
2: Uh, well. I'm... I guess in some ways I'm a bit of a fraud because uh, I never really had a sort of great burning desire to be a writer. And that has happened almost by <laughs> accident. Um, I became a journalist because uh, I saw the movie Salvador and okay. thought James Woods's character was great.
1: <laughs> and uh, I'm not familiar so that, with that, that movie. What happens? Presumably it's set in El Salvador.
2: So, He's a photographer who goes to cover the civil war in Salvador, drinks an enormous amount of whiskey. His best friend is shot trying to uh, take a picture of, a, of an incoming airstrike. Uh, he falls in love with a Salvadorian woman and managed to smuggle out some film. It's an Oliver Stone movie. Okay. Um, oh, and he takes us, uh, 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 James Belushi along as a sort of rock DJ com- uh, companion. Okay. Um, it just looked fantastic to me and I, you know, I, it, it, I just saw it at a moment when I was trying to decide what to do with my life and, and that looked great. And then how, how
1: did you go about actually making your entry to journalism?
2: Well, so obviously, immediately I went to work for the Great Yarmouth Mercury, which okay. seemed to be, you know, <laughs> the, di- the most direct route I could find. Right. Uh, no, I, I went to Cardiff, did that course for a year and the only job I could get was on the Great Yarmouth Mercury um, on seven thousand pounds a year, where um, which was which was slightly brilliant, paying us that little because it meant we couldn't actually afford a train ticket to London. Okay. So I was there for two and a half years, and um, but it, did, it that did teach me a lot. And there was uh, Great Yarmouth. I don't know if you know <laughs> it. Um, it's a seaside resort that died decades ago, about half a century ago, actually. Yeah. And now fills all its guest houses with uh, people on benefits. Um, and in the nice county of Norfolk, uh, it was our job to come up with all the crime. Okay. Um, because cause Yarmouth had a lot of it. You know, there was a few murders every year and, and uh, rates, quite a lot of drugs. You know, it was, you know, horrible uh, social decay. And that was our that was my patch. And was, um, it, was it
1: clear, this, this was what, sort of mid, late 90s that, this, that you're
2: doing this? Early 90s, mate, yeah. Okay,
1: okay. <laughs> w- was it clear that this was, you know, a route to, to the big time and the bright lights? Or was there, were there people who were sort of going to start at the Great Yarmouth Mercury and, and finish at the Great Yarmouth Mercury as well?
2: There were those. Uh, there were those for whom the big time was working for Anglia TV Okay. Uh, um, Yeah, there were definitely people that were staying in East Anglia, but there were there were some people who, uh, you know, went to the nationals. That was as far as anybody's ambitions kind of went. Yeah. Uh, Um, And it was this kind of idea that we did two or three years uh, apprenticeship, penance, call it what you like. And and then you were able to call yourself sort of qualified and, and able to start sort of moving on. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of remnants of the old apprenticeship system in, in print journalism, I guess. Yeah.
1: And didn't you have a, a spell at Teletext as well in your in your yeah.
2: career? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I did all the great jobs. I, you know, great. Authority. Then I worked for a terrible uh, news agency in Leicester that was trying to rival the press association as a kind of national news agency. But amazingly doing it by doing. Almost no reports at all, or, or well, so there was some reporting on the phone, but you definitely didn't leave the office, okay? Um, because there were so few people, right? Uh, and uh, we were just rip and run merchants, you know, ripping everybody off. It was on the BBC. Basically, we we more or less counted that as our interview and just sort of quoted it and okay. uh, and wrote a story. Um, and I was there for a year or so, and then yes, then I'm my big move to London. I was working for Teletext on the night shift. <laughs> Um, which for those that don't know, it was kind of like an early version of the internet on your TV. You could get, you could get text stories on basically on the size of a TV screen. That meant you could, you you were limited to three sentences actually for an entire story. And and there was no way of justifying the text. Um, You know, you couldn't squash it or expand it. You had to get the letters exactly right to be able to fit on the screen. That was a, a real art. Um, and then, yeah, five years of all those cruddy jobs, I, I managed to get a job at um, Agence France-Presse, the French news agency, as a, as a reporter. And they took their beat to include, uh, from the London office, to include Northern Ireland and actually all the British territories in the Caribbean as well. So that, okay. that, was, that was kind of my start, really, in, in, in what I wanted to do. And, um, yeah, foreign trips came. I mean, my first assignment overseas was to go and cover a... Uh, a, a volcano in Montserrat in the Caribbean, okay, um, which, which was just amazing. Yeah.
1: And, and what, during that time that you were doing your apprenticeship or, or, you know, penance or whatever one would phrase it, did did any of the the sort of desire did did that kind of bright you know excitement at doing this that you had got from that film and so forth? Did that flame stay alive, or did it? You know, what was your? Oh yeah,
2: no, very much so. And then and then I think I began to realise that it might actually be possible to get there if 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 you know if I kept kind of plugging away at it and, and kept focus on the prize um, and AFP was was one way to i mean wire copy is not the most interesting to write a lot of the time, but it it did get me around yeah. um, and I moved with them to Hong Kong um, okay. as a as an editor on the desk but you know I got a few assignments I went and covered a an earthquake in Taiwan and uh, the handover of Macau to China. Um, so, th- yeah, I, I, it, was, it was step by step by step. And then in, while I was in Hong Kong, I joined Time magazine and um, with very good, very lucky timing, yeah. uh, just before 9-11. And, and that was the Asia office of Time magazine. Afghanistan was in their patch. And, and I, I you know, although I was the... very much the junior reporter there was a there was a rather elderly reporter who was sent to Afghanistan and really didn't want to be there Mm -hmm. and I literally on my knees persuaded my editor to do to allow me to replace him okay um I I guess that you know if I my career was definitely slow and this is this is 10 years in by by then but if I had a break at any point that was my break
1: Sure. And can we talk about this extraordinary story that, that you send over about from, from Afghanistan in late 2001? I, I don't want to mispronounce it, but Kuala, the, the, the prison break
2: piece. Kuala Yeah. How yeah. did,
1: how did this, all, this all come about?
2: So, again, I mean, a enormous amount of luck. Um, I was in Uzbekistan on the, on the Afghan border with, with about 250 other journalists. Yeah. Um, I'd been friends with a... Um, a French guy who had his own slightly extraordinary story. He'd been selling shampoo for L'Oreal in Uzbekistan. And when the war started, uh, just decided that the, that the journalism looked more fun. Okay. And, um, but Damien was one of the most charming people you'll ever meet. I mean, he. he so on the border was this completely intransigent Uzbek press chief who was not going to let anybody do anything that they wanted, particularly mm-hmm. across the border. But, you know, while everyone else sort of fumed and kicked the door and whatever, Damien took him out for dinner. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the guy offered him a few places on this barge that was the, the border between Uzbekistan and Afghanistan is a river. Yeah, and, uh, Damien offered a few sort of seats on a barge that was delivering some grain across. And the idea was that we covered the the great sort of munificence of the Uzbek people sending grain to the poor starving people of Afghanistan. And I got one of those spots, and of course, you know, as soon as it touched land on the other side, I just walked off
1: into Afghanistan.
2: (laughs) And, um, you know, I mean, you've covered a few war zones yourself. You know, they're never quite as dangerous as everybody makes out and as your imagination, uh, you know, conjures up. And I walked out of this small sort of port facility, found a taxi and more or less said, take to the war. And, okay. um, and that was it. I was, uh, yeah, it was slightly amazing. That's all it took really to be first man into Northern Afghanistan. And I had the whole thing to myself for about two weeks.
1: What, what happened to the man from L'Oreal?
2: Uh he's still in touch with him. Okay. <laughs> he, he caught up with me, um, a little bit later. He was, unfortunately, he was with a French crew that didn't want to go, even though they had the opportunity. Okay. Um, but um, he made up for it later. I, um, I got, because he was working for a TV crew, I got hold of some film um, that was immensely valuable. It, was the, it showed Mike Spann, who was the CIA agent uh, and the first American to be killed in Afghanistan, um, interrogating John Walker-Lind, who was the American Taliban. Yeah. Um, this, I, I think probably my bosses at the time were... We're trying to, who were trying to sort of, well, we were also, you know, early days of the internet, I didn't quite realize what video might mean to the website of Time magazine, so I just passed it over to my friend who promptly sold it for $55,000 to every broadcaster in the <laughs> world.
1: <laughs> and, and how did you end up at this? It was a prison break, basically. That was the, the
2: what yeah. Happened. yeah. Yeah, so, so the, um, in northern Afghanistan, it was. Falling pretty rapidly, the special forces had done, the American special forces and a few Brits had done an incredible job linking up with uh, Northern Alliance, particularly uh, General Dostum. Mm-hmm. And they'd swept through most of Afghanistan, uh, well, most of Northern Afghanistan. And there were, they'd taken a lot of prisoners, about eight or nine thousand, but they'd sifted them. And there were about 400. That were thought to be of interest to CIA types, uh, you know, basically foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had taken these 400 people to this old fort in the middle of the desert, shoved them into the into the dungeons. They hadn't bothered to disarm them. Um, there was there was no order to it. They put minimal guards on them, and a few days later, when they brought them all out. 400 of them to be interrogated by two cia guys guarded by about 20 people you know unsurprisingly the these these taliban slash al-qaeda suspects rose up and and started a rebellion inside this prison fort and um, and that battle went on for about a week and where were um, you while this was going on well I, again you know i mean just show, i mean I, I was just blessed with luck at this point I, everyone was by then, a few you know, there were, there were maybe sort of 20 reporters around. They are all charging off, as far, from memory to couldn't do's. For me, working for a weekly, I reckoned that there was no point doing what everybody else was doing, So I was on my way south to go and look at uh, a sort of American airstrike. And my taxi broke down just outside of town, and we fixed it. But as we were fixing it, I was standing outside and I could just hear this pop, pop, pop of gunfire in the distance. Hmm. And um, so we fixed the car, went back into town and I, I said to my fixer, you know, let's go and see what's, what that is. And, and he was like, no, oh, it'd be nothing. It'll just be a wedding or something like that. And we walk up to this old fort and this rather well, sort of jumpy guard comes out and says, uh, you know, what do you want? What do you want? What do You, you know, uh, there's nothing going on here. And um, we can hear we can hear the gunfire. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of saying, I, I think there's something going on here. And as I'm saying that, an RPG round splits the air between us, basically, okay. and wow. exposes an official about 50 yards away, at which point he sort of shrugs his shoulders and goes, OK, there is something going on. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and they let us in. And it was, you know, that first early stage of a battle I mean this never happened to me you know later in, in the in the 20 years later that you you come across a battle as its beginning but that was the one time I managed to do that and and as a battle is beginning it's complete chaos mm. and everyone's got far better things to do than than take care of some reporter so we had sort of freedom really to sort of walk around talk to people say you know first of all to gauge what was safe and what wasn't and then sort of kind of find our various spots where we could sit and observe and reasonably safely and 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 kind of record the progress of this battle
1: and a lot has, has kind of been discussed in time since then about you know young young journalists particularly freelancers which i suppose you weren't at that time but people going into uh, combat or other danger zones you know as as kind of young people with fairly limited experience and you know for some it really works out and some it doesn't what are your kind of thoughts on on that kind of thing and how how one should approach that kind of work
2: Look, I mean, it worked out for me. Um, you know, I survived. There was, a, there was a, a friend of mine who was shot in the chest and survived, you know, walked 10 yards from where I'd been sitting. Hmm. Um, and I wrote a story that won several awards and got included in uh, Best American something, uh, reporting or writing, anyway, some kind of yeah. anthology. And it, and it kind of established me, really. I mean, you know, um, in fact, it still goes on to this day. I, I get asked to sort of take part in... Kind of historical documentaries and so on but you know as you say i wasn't freelance i was staff at time magazine but i had zero training i yeah. didn't have a flat jacket my sat phone had broken almost as soon as i picked it up mm-hmm. um and i had no i would say i had no idea what i was doing yeah. um and you know test my wife will tell you that i picked up a decent dose of ptsd from from that as well just just being for three or four days in very close proximity to, to people killing each other was, was, well, at, at the time it was an incredibly adrenalizing electric experience, but it was, it was extremely hard to come down off that, you know, yeah. for, for, for several years. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say even the, the richest, um, staff positions at that stage time magazine was a hugely profitable magazine. Hmm. They had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. I had no idea what I was doing but they put no work into prep they didn't you know I mean later I went to Iraq and they you know as, instead of a flat vest they gave me a skateboard vest okay you know, which, which which might save you from a bit of nasty chafing if you fall off your board you know it's, yeah. it's you know it, it, so I think I think all media was woefully out of practice at war to be yeah. honest and um and they didn't they didn't address it quickly enough after after that initial sort of uh, hail of fire and 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 for years afterwards yeah they, they, they were you know the whole the whole thing was woefully substandard and it and it was you got through these things or you didn't largely based on luck
1: and how were you able to physically file your story as well if your your cell phone had broken how did you get your copy out
2: so, well, my my sat phone was able to do voice, but not text. So okay. I was, I dictated, okay. um, you know, at, at some point, I found myself basically dictating trench while the guy next to me fired off clip after clip of his AK. Okay. Um, and um, actually, it was weird that my, that was, you know, I'm being quite rude about Time magazine, but that, there was a very good editorial decision then. Whoever was on the other end, just took that absolutely verbatim and put it out yeah. with the noise of gunfire, with my slightly hysterical laughing every now and then. Yeah. And um, it was a very, actually, weirdly, even though I had nothing to do with with writing it, that's one of my sort of the things I'm most proud of. It just, it really, it's really a, a visceral piece of reporting. You're right there in the trenches as, as, as everything happens. You know? Yeah, it's
1: very, it's very powerful. I mean, did it feel as well that you had some, in some cases or in some way reached a, an aspect or a level of journalism that was what you had wanted to do, perhaps? You know, the, the Salvador kind of thing after all that. Yeah, no, it, it did. Through.
2: It did. I mean, I, you know, and I was slightly pinching myself. You know, this is what I wanted. It, it, you know, I've amazingly, you know, I've, I've, I've got to where I want to be. And, you know, even more amazingly... Um, it hasn't let me down. You know, it's exactly, it turns out to be exactly what I wanted. I absolutely loved it. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: you know, and it totally changed my life um, and it, it was everything I, I wanted it to be. It wasn't a false god, you know. It was, yeah. I mean, I would say the only downside to that was, was you know, I, I, I ran after war for a good sort of ten years if not more after that. Um, just, just going for that experience. Actually, you know, in the end, I worked out that the experience that I'd had that first time, it was never going to get. It was never going to be that again. Okay. There was just so many flukes uh, involved in in being in precisely the right time, a number of different times, uh, you know, and the, and the, the right moment and the right place that, you know, for the rest of my career, I was always doing aftermath or sometimes, you know, years afterwards yeah um so yeah no it, it it totally fulfilled all my expectations even exceeded them um but can it we, was um
1: sorry you know, can we can we talk then about the years that followed so you you then were a staff foreign correspondent for time in in india yeah. and, in, and in africa I and mean, did it i suppose in retrospect it's easy to sort of regard that as something of like the end of an era of of the staff foreign correspondent roles for obviously some of them still exist the new york times and, and so forth but did it did it feel like this was something that was going to go on forever or did it could you see no, I, shame?
2: I, I, I knew from the beginning that it was slightly doomed um and my thought process was simply you know i'm going to ride this strange torpedo all the way to the end yeah. um you know just see how long it lasts and in the end it lasted quite a long time you know i did After Afghanistan, I I got the bureau chief job in India, that was five years, and then I got the bureau chief job in Africa, that was eight. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, I think, about two or three foreign correspondents at Time Magazine still, actually. Mm -hmm. I quit um, when they started to ask me to do it on the the phone, you know, can you, this story in Congo, can you you do it on the phone? Well, no, you can't do it on the phone, Mm. you know. You've got you've really got to go. They haven't got the phone coverage in, in Congo. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but I, no, I think I always knew that time was going downhill. It was it was apart from, you know, the the story that we all know of of, of you know, the Internet and the loss of advertising and the decline of establishment media and so on. Time magazine, even inside that, was woefully mismanaged. It was totally top-heavy with editors who had ludicrous expense accounts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you just took one look at all that, all these guys driving around, you know, all being driven around in limos and, and people expensing $800 bottles of wine and stuff like that. And you just sort of thought, okay, so this is not going to last. Yeah. <laughs>
1: What was your routine in, in those years when you were a bureau chief abroad? I mean, was there how much of the time were you on the road? How much were you working at, at home? And and you know what was the, the, the regime de vivre of those those years like?
2: I guess I mean on a on a very busy year I'd be traveling half the year. Yeah. Um, most years slightly less than that, but uh, you know in India I had. Um, Seven countries in my patch, all of South Asia, basically. Yeah. Um. And in Africa, I had 49. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was it was just me alone. Um. So that was a lot of travelling. Um. I was fine with that. Uh. You know, that's part of the reason why I, I love the job so much. It was um, I wouldn't say it was the ideal job to be simultaneously um, a father to a young family. Yeah. Um. So that was a a juggling act. Uh. But um. Uh. Yeah. It, it, there was a. There was a lot of travel. And and I, since I stopped doing that job, I do really appreciate you know being at home a bit more with my kids. And
1: yeah. Well, and what about early entry into into book writing? When did that first take place for you?
2: Uh. Well, when I was in India. And I and I'd done three years in Hong Kong as well. So I knew I knew China and India and China were the two sort of um, examples, poster boy, girls of globalization, yeah. which was really it was it, it, everything being published about globalization was was a version of Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat. Mm. And it essentially sort of said this is this miraculous process that is bringing the whole world together in a, in a harmonious group hug. And um, isn't it wonderful? And um, clearly, quite clearly, Tom Friedman and all the others who wrote those books had no idea what they were talking about. Right. If you lived in China or India. Because there, um, it was very clear that, that there were millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people were deeply unhappy about the way that capitalism had, uh, had um, come into their country like a tsunami yeah. and had been so disruptive. Um, some people had become astronomically rich, very, very few. Hundreds of millions of people had been excluded, and some of those people were unhappy enough to start revolutions. Right. Um, there were loads of basically unreported, uh, riots, revolutions, assassinations, whatever going on in China, um, in, in India and Nepal, there were separate Maoist Marxist revolutions, all of these conflicts cited globalization as yeah. their primary cause. And when I got to Africa, I actually, I found similar kind of things. So, so the first book I wrote was, uh, <clears throat> collecting examples, really, from around the world to kind of make that case. I, in hindsight now, my f- first book, I would say, I, th- I think the idea is actually the argument stands up. And in many ways, Brexit, Trump and the rest of it is, is, is still part of that story. You know, I, I spent a lot of time sort of saying, well, when people get this pissed off, they tend to move to extremes and you tend to get ex- you know, extreme left, extreme right reactions. Yeah. Well, you know, you kind of see that with with Brexit and Trump and, and, and Marie Le Pen, say, or, or you know, the German far right party or the Italian government. So I, in some ways, I feel like the West, Europe and the States is now finally catching up, actually, to what's been going on in the rest of the world for 20 years. Yeah. Um, having said all of that, as a, the, you know, the argument is valid. I don't think I wrote that book particularly well. Um, what, you know, what,
1: what were the mechanics of sort of agent and publisher and stuff like that for, at that stage for you?
2: agent I found through one of my editors at time um, who made an introduction um, it was a very weird relationship I had with that agent I never actually met them okay. um, they weren't quite sure you know I, I was hoping for a kind of back and forth as to how we would conceptualize this book, the one thing they did to... I, I wrote it initially all about India. Mm-hmm. And, and they wrote back sort of saying, well, mm, that's going to be hard to sell. Can you make it about the world?
0: <laughs> right.
2: And I sort of, stupidly, I sort of said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, so pulled in sort of some reporting from China. I did some, some more reporting, pulled in a bit of reporting from Africa. I think actually I could have executed it as as to to be a good book. With, I, I think I had the reporting, but I, I did not have the writing skill to be able to do it. To structure structure mainly was my problem. And uh, you know, as 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 some agents are, you know, they they, they secured a deal for it um, and just disappeared. Never heard from them again. Yeah. And uh, and so you're completely alone with this process. And and, and I had editors at, at the publishers who also, you know, minimal contact type people. I mean, I, I filed the manuscript hoping that this was kind of a first draft and that there would be much rolling up of sleeves and back and forth, months and months of rewriting and so on. And actually, I just got a one-word email reply saying, brilliant, and that was it.
1: God, okay, yeah, very worrying. So nine
2: months later, it was published, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I- it wasn't brilliant. It was, <laughs> it was something that I would really like to have rewritten several times
1: (laughs) we'll come back to the the more recent books in a minute but i wanted to talk about the kind of yeah you the post uh post time magazine period so so newsweek and then moving moving into freelance and and obviously to say that i i worked with alex at newsweek so we we know each other from from that period but how yeah how did that that transition all work
2: well i I quit time i had i had a book contract for my third book um Oh, I have one in the offing. I knew I was pretty sure we were going to land one for a, a big Africa book. Um, I, I, I guess taking a kind of similar kind of contrarian tone to, to my first book about globalization. This was sort of saying Africa is not what you think it is. It is not a starving baby. It is primarily a business story. And what Africans hate above all else is the uh the aid industry and that fundamentally this is an issue of freedom aid in the end is belittling to people it takes away their agency their freedom to make their own choices and uh and we in the west need to catch up to to 21st century africa so it was it was it was an attempt to sort of overturn misperception Mm -hmm. I, it was largely based on the reporting I'd done for eight years in Africa, so it was it was actually just a sitting down and writing job. I did that for about a year with some extra reporting here and there. Uh, coming out of that, I joined Newsweek with you, and we were there for that jolly ride for as long as it lasted. Not even a year, was it? <laughs>
1: should, should we? I mean, we can, we can, I suppose, both discuss this slightly, but so we, we were both on these, uh, hired by the European Edition on these great, great deals to write just long-form stuff, and I think for me, I, you know, I yeah. had a great time there. I learned a great deal. But as you, as you say, it was one of these things that perhaps seemed slightly too good to be true at the time and it, uh, perhaps so it proved. But I don't know what your thoughts are on it
2: in, in retrospect. I mean, I loved it. I mean, God, what a contract. You know, 10, My contract was 10,000 10, worders in a year. Yeah. Uh, they pay me pretty well yeah. and expenses on top and, um, and anywhere in the world. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I I went to Africa, I went to Nepal, I uh, did anything I wanted. Um, the approval process, you know, the pitching process was the best I I will ever have. You know, it was literally a phone call to Richard Addis. Oh, there's been an earthquake in Nepal. I think I should go. I think you should go. Boom, you know, you're gone. Okay. Um, I loved it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I don't know whether I had taken on board actually that it was too good to be true, but I probably should have done. Yeah. So I, I just, it was, um, when the whole thing collapsed sort of 10 months later, yeah. um, I, w- I was disappointed. It took me a little while to kind of recover and I, I had nothing to go to, yeah. you know, 10, 10,000 10, worders in a year is a real sprint. I mean, that, that, yeah, that you are working work. all the time. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're doing a book a year, right. in 10 yeah. different stories. um, and I, I threw everything I had into that. And um, so I had no life outside it and no plans outside it. So when it collapsed, yeah, I was, I was a little bit at a loss. Yeah. Um, but the what was going to be my ninth, I think, or tenth story for Newsweek um, was the story of these three women who stood up against the Calabrian Mafia, the Andrangheta, and, and that subsequently... Became my fourth book, so in a way, Newsweek's collapse was a blessing because if I'd just done it as a ten thousand word article, it probably would have ended there.
1: Yeah. Well, can we talk both about the specifics of of the the Good Mother's book, but also, yeah, about the whole the whole move to going freelance, the, the, the way you brought in TV and film work, and again, you know, we always try and ask about money on the podcast. So how, literally, how you how you made it work?
2: Well, I think I I, I knew already that to, just to be. I mean, I wanted to go freelance. I was, you know, having had two establishment news organizations die under me, Yeah. I sort of felt like, you know, I didn't really want to do that again. And, um, But I also knew that being purely print long form was financially precarious, if not impossible with, yeah. well, certainly with three children. Yeah. So I pursued... But with no plan, I, I pursued the story of the Good Mothers, did some more reporting, and then lo and behold, um, the. It, by then, I had a different agent, Patrick Walsh, and he was working at Curtis Brown at the t- at the time. And I kept Patrick in touch with what I was doing. The guy in the office next to him at Curtis Brown was the guy that sold print stories, print books to TV and film, and and he heard about the story of the Good Mothers and. I wrote a proposal for him and he sold that to a London production company for we didn't know what a movie or a TV series before Patrick had sold the book. Okay. But that was so that a opened my eyes to the possibility of essentially getting paid more than once for the same thing. Yeah. Uh, But also that process. I met all these um, production companies in London who which that was a revelation because. I was so used to being in this kind of funereal atmosphere in, in print journalism where you were eking out a living and probably expecting, you know, most of your outlets to die. And, and the whole world was rather bleak and depressing. Yeah. Um, and then and TV production companies were just full of these hugely enthusiastic uh, people who are constantly inviting you to lunch and, um, and you know, seem to hang on your every word but most importantly, had pots and pots of money.
1: Yeah,
2: And, um, and, and seemed to, you know, the, the pitching process. Whenever I pitched a story about, I don't know, Sudan to an editor, you could just hear them groan. Yeah, Because they was, oh, that's going to cost me money, isn't it? Oh, dear. Whereas that just never happened with, with TV people. They just went, uh-huh. And, and you were like, oh, right, okay. So it's this, this story in Sudan. And they would they would just say, "Well, write it down and send it to me." And sometimes they would buy it as a as a as a proposal for a TV series. So, uh, you know, in the end, I sold about seven or eight of those. Uh, some of them, one or two of them, definitely are not going anywhere. But yeah. some of them are. Yeah. You know. Um, and just and on yeah, on that, on
1: the, on the well, mechanics of this. So these were these were like treatments—is the right word? Or they, they were fictional yeah. stories based on reporting that you'd done.
2: Sometimes, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it, you know, I'd be asked to write, uh, a a fact-based, uh, treatment for a documentary, for a feature documentary. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but mostly I would take something that I covered, like say cocaine smuggling in West Africa, um, and pull in all the reporting I'd done and inside that create, you know, explain that world in a, two or three pages, setting out how the what are the dynamics, what are the players, who's doing what, you know, what's at stake, and then suggest a fictional treatment of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as in, you know, your lead character could be this kind of guy and he could do this kind of thing, and he'd probably meet this type of person and he'd want to be friends with that type of person. You know, and you just, essentially you raise possibilities for a much more established screenwriter to come in yeah, and take your material and, and run with it um yeah and it, you know it, they're not hard to pull together i mean you can write one of these things in, in in over a weekend
1: yeah
2: it's also not a lot of money i mean you you sell these things you know you you sell an option on them for 18 months and you might get anywhere between sort of five grand and, and ten grand possibly more um but You know, you sell a few of them with book advances, with with long-form payments. You know, that actually became a viable living.
1: Yeah. And how long did it take to kind of get that machinery, that freelancing machinery, up and running and viable?
2: Do you know, I mean, I, 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 I think it's actually only in the last couple of months that I think I have got all those pieces in place all my engines running um that i'm not sort of look looking at my bank account you know in a moment of crisis and fear sort of every couple of weeks it's it's it has taken quite a while and 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 you have to be you you just have to be very disciplined you know i don't now take on any story that i don't think can be i mean it has to qualify to be possible to be a long-form piece to be a book and to be a TV series or a movie, it has to tick all those boxes.
1: Really, probably
2: yeah. all those things won't happen, yeah. but I have to have at least have that potential um, for for this to work. And if it does have that, um, then it's a go. And, and and so I'm I'm very very picky into what I take on because if you know if you if you're going to be doing all these different things, actually it's going to be a year or two of your life. Yeah. Um, so you've got to get that right.
1: Have you continued to to publish the journalism as you've done the TV stuff? Has that has that continued?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the journalism is 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 weirdly, although it's, you know, that's how I define myself. It's kind of sometimes feels as though it's slightly on the side. I mean, I I will knock out a piece um, for Guardian Long Reads or something. I did one last year about um, uh, which was a profile of Lynn Owens and and the National Crime Agency. Yeah. Well, I did that because I was doing a lot of research into organised crime in the UK, and that seemed a way to get my research paid for, basically. Yeah. Um, it was also an interesting enough story, I hope. Um, but that—that yeah, that ultimately, my my bigger idea uh, was a TV series about organised crime in the UK.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, completely fictional, and 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 I needed to know how that world worked. And, and can we talk on on
1: organised crime, but not in the UK, about the the Good Mothers project? How you went about reporting and breaking into that world, and then and then you know how the TV and also the, the sort of New Yorker extract of that all all came to pass?
2: Yeah, well, I, so I told you I sold the the option to uh, House Productions in London, and and that does seem like it's going to. Um, going to go ahead as a tv series that there's a pilot script written by a really top screenwriter they're talking to a very prestigious director um you know the tv what the tv and film world moves very slowly but um yeah i mean that I'm I, I'm pretty hopeful of that one.
1: And on, that, and, and just to pause you there, that on the financial side, you're saying that you know the, the the money for an option is pretty limited, but it's it's like first day of principal photography, right? the the, the big money. that's
2: that's when you get a big check. But initially, the option that option was was decent. I think it was fifteen grand, and yeah. and that paid for me to go to Italy a number of times to. Uh, do some reporting speak to the sort of principles of the story gather a load a lot of that book is is based on judicial documents and i was really just taking prosecutors out to lunch and getting and handing them a memory stick and getting them to download their entire office really um and uh and then taking and and then so my process was taking all that documentation pushing it through google translate which took a uh, you know an age and then picking out what was the most interesting stuff and sending it to um a kind of UN level translator in, in Italy yeah um and that it was yeah i mean um halfway through that process i did sell the book um and so the advance money kept me going there um and uh patrick my agent managed to sell um editions to i think five or six European countries, which is little small money, you know, but it, but it, but it all adds up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 I mean that, I have to say that whole process of writing and reporting that book and, and seeing it released, things were precarious financially. Yeah. Um, but since then I have picked up sort of, uh, you know, a number of other projects that have all begun to overlap. I mean, I, I you know, the whole thing with, with books and TV, you, you've got to realize that they're a nightmare in terms of cash flow because it's often you sign a contract, but you don't get your last payment until three years later. Yeah. So you have this awful period where you seem to have a lot of work, but nobody's paid you. And, yeah. and that can be ruinous. You know, I'm, I'm now over that, uh, which is why it's a bit more free sailing for me right now. I mean, it's
1: interesting. There seems to be a kind of increasing discussion in the freelance world. I don't know if you've seen this about, you know, trying to get news organizations to, to not just pay on publication, right. To, to put money up front and, and to do all of that. And that's the, I certainly yeah. think that's a very laudable thing because as you say, it's not necessarily the, the amounts it's, it's the cash flow That's the, the pivotal thing to making it work. Right.
2: Oh yeah. Well, you know, particularly, you know, this kind of stuff that you and I do, you know, going, I'm, I'm doing a story at the moment um, on John Chow, the, the, um, you know, the missing, well, the missionary that was killed in India. Yeah. Well, that involves flying to India and the U S expenses are going to be seven or eight grand. Yeah. You no, know, that's, I've, I've got to fund that. Um, and that does feel, Oh, well, I'm used to it, but, um, uh, it's never felt fair.
1: Yeah. And can we, can we talk about the, the sniper project as well? How, how that came about and how that kind of work, uh, there it compares to the other the other type
2: well so that so that's a ghostwriting project um someone who found his way to patrick my agent um a young kurdish guy who escaped from iran to the uk became a british citizen and then went back to syria and fought as a sniper uh, and was part of a very small group of snipers who essentially stopped isis i mean inside I think we all know this, the, the broad story of how ISIS was on a seemingly an unstoppable roll, and then it certainly wasn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, suddenly it wasn't, and it was retreating. Well, they were stopped in a particular town uh, called Kobani uh, on the Turkish-Syrian border. And inside that five-month battle, there were five snipers who shot 2,000 people. Right. Uh, I mean, absolutely extraordinary. And, and this guy was one of them. Yeah. So, but it was my job to, you know, he wanted to do a book. He, English is not his first language, and he'd never written anything before. So, I got together with him through Patrick, and he came down to, to my house in Hampshire for about a year. And I essentially just downloaded his story from him in an mm-hmm. interview and then, and then wrote it. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting experience ghost writing you know it's, it's it's such a i found it such an enormous relief to take any byline out of work you know any kind of ego or i always loathe that kind of self-promotional stuff and i'm really bad at it as well i'm really awkward at it and so not to have to do any of that and actually to put aside yourself completely and assume someone else's voice it was yeah it was fascinating plus you know the story was amazing amazing i mean i i you know it's only been out A few days now but um yeah it's a real warsaw ghetto street by street house by house grinding uh portrait of of close combat warfare it's extraordinary and your name how did you how does it work your name
1: is not on it
2: no he he uh azad the sniper he asked me when we were finishing did i want that and i sort of said to him you know it's up to you Mm-hmm. um you know my contract was with him he had all the power yeah um and he didn't want my name on it so fine um yeah. i am in the acknowledgements um yeah. and uh yeah i mean it's it, it's 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 it, it, it's a relationship that could be problematic so far as ad and i have you know we've we've, we've been sort of very gentlemanly with each other um the the book picked up a lovely heart stopping quote from John Le Carre, mm. yeah yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Seems to, which seems to be about the be about the quality of the writing. So I'm definitely using that, <laughs> um, but I'm sure Azad will use it too.
1: <laughs> and and how do you see things going forward from here with juggling the? Do, do you see yourself staying staying as a freelancer, or you know if if the offer came to go back and work for a big media organization, would you?
2: I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, every now and then the, these jobs come up that I would previously have considered dream jobs. I remember a few years ago, there was a job at the Washington post that was essentially, you know, global war correspondent. Uh, you know, the Atlantic was hiring recently and there seems to be some really juicy jobs there. I just, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I've had that sort of taste of freedom. My, Relationship with my editors at, at Time in particular was generally strained, I would say. Um, yeah. You know, I, I never quite got used to the idea that some guy in New York would think up a story and go and ask me to do it without asking <laughs> whether it had any value. <laughs>
0: yeah. and,
2: it, you know, and, and sometimes it really obviously did not. Um, I, I, that whole hierarchy I found. Problematic to telling the truth and problematic to telling good stories, yeah. um, and I do relish the freedom I have now to spot something, follow my instincts, develop it, present it as I want it presented, and and you know every now and then uh, get some sort of validation in in the form of a quote from John Le Carre or something, you know. And
1: I think when we last spoke, you were you were sort of dipping your toes into writing a script yourself, right? So sort of moving in the TV world across from yeah from from doing uh doing original material. Um, sorry, from doing these kind of these kind of things that would, then a scriptwriter would work off to write you forward. How, how has that been? How's that continued since we last spoke about it?
2: I'm I'm such a beginner in that world. I did I wrote a pilot. I have shown it to very few people. Um, They've been quite nice about it, but I can kind of tell that it's not great.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
2: um, yeah, it's, it's going to take a lot of work. It's, it's, with screenwriting, I feel as though slightly that I'm floating in space. You know, uh, long-form journalism, writing books, I know what I'm doing. I do not know what I'm doing with screenwriting. There are, you know, I have sent myself on a few courses and i read all the books that there are, but I am not confident that I, that I know what I'm doing. Um, is that so, because
1: it's script or is that because it's fiction? Do you think it's like taking the stabilizers off of, of kind of moving, you know, to stuff where, where you, you, you not only can but sort of have to make stuff up? And- well, no,
2: it's, it's not so much moving to fiction. It's, um, it's partly to do with the format, but it's partly to do with the fact that I, I think it's mostly to do with the fact actually that screenwriting is incredibly formulaic. Hmm. There are um, rules about structure f- for the overall arc, for each scene, for each character, for, you know, the, and there are beats and you can pick up any screenwriting book and they will more or less tell you the same way uh, to structure and write a, a story. And it, and it feels deeply unnatural and, 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 you know, part of your brain is, is sort of thinking, oh, well this is why all films are formulaic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, a lot of them are. And, and, and the bad ones are where you, you see the skeleton, you see, you, you see this structure that you can read about in any screenwriting book. The good ones that play around with that a bit. Yeah. Uh, but obviously you've got to be a bit of a, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's that thing. You've got to be a bit of a maestro to be able to break the rules. <laughs> mm. And I'm, i'm not at that stage yet at all yeah yeah
1: and i suppose the final thing would you still do conflict journalism
2: now yeah i would yeah definitely
1: yeah
2: definitely i mean i just you know people apart from the thing else people always used to ask me wasn't it really depressing doing that kind of thing and you know quite the opposite the people that you meet in the most extreme circumstances often tend to be the most inspirational, the most resilient. Their stories are the most captivating and extraordinary. Um, I have no, I, I, yeah, I certainly don't have the kind of slightly teenage bloodlust that I used to have, which was, which was you know, I, it, there was definitely, I liked the adrenaline and I liked, I liked that small little crowd of, of, of reporters that roam the world doing hard stories. You know, I'm not part of that anymore. But I do think that you find incredible stories in the in these hard hard places, and uh, and I think that'll always attract me. Yeah, yeah.
1: Even do you feel that having a, a family changed your views on on that on taking risks and stuff like that?
2: You know, probably not nearly as much as it should. By the yeah. time I had a family, though, I would say this that that I knew. I'd, I'd done quite a few wars um, and i I suppose I was arrogant enough to to, 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 to think that I knew what I was doing yeah. um, and and I think my view of of conflict generally is that it's not nearly as dangerous as everybody imagines it might be yeah um, you know there are times when it is very extreme, but if I think of the thirty plus wars that I've covered, there's only two or three times actually when i've when I've been in real danger the rest of the time I was just as likely to have a car accident to be honest sure sure
1: okay Alex well we'll, um, we'll draw, a, draw a line on this there but look thanks so much for, for taking the time hello it's us again with an update from our lives Ellie what have you been up to?
0: I've been writing a lot about France The Telegraph I recently wrote um, an ode to Moliere and now and then I interviewed Leila Slimani who's a French author and now I'm writing about the decline of great French cinema so
1: very interesting um, I've been working on uh, various magazine projects so a couple of business week assignments um, and I've been uh, hanging out at an unnamed radio station for a Guardian Long Read so all very interesting Ooh. anyway this has been Always Take Notes hosted by me Simon Acom
0: and me Eleanor Halls
1: our producer is Nicola Keane Zara Hankier handles our social media And our uh, score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar.
0: You can find us on Twitter at uh, Take Notes Always or on Instagram at Always Take Notes. And we'd love it if you would rate and review the podcast on iTunes.
1: And if you like what we're doing, if you fancied contributing to our crowdfunding campaign on Patreon, that would also be great. Many thanks.
0: Thank you.